thank you so much, John. I appreciate that. And we at Team appreciate you and the many, many years of faithful commitment to global missions. And uh, I have been in Zimbabwe with, uh, with Doug and Nancy. Sean was actually here when I was in Zimbabwe. And uh, I still stay quite engaged with things that are going on in Zimbabwe for TEAM. I serve as uh, the advancement officer for TEAM, so I help provide the resources that are needed to fund TEAM's work in over 50 countries around the world. And just this last week, uh, submitted a uh, foundation request for Karanda Mission Hospital for funding for their oxygen generator uh, which they presently have, which is undersized for the scope of the number of patients that they need to serve. So you might pray that God's favor would rest on them as they consider that request for funding for that. Turn in your Bibles, if you will, this morning to the book of Ephesians. Probably most of us could quote Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one should boast. And most of the people who memorize those verses stop right there, not realizing that the point of those two verses is to get us to verse 10, which says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God has prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. It is clear that God has something for each believer to do, that he has planned for you and for me to accomplish even before we were born. We are on a mission. Every single one of us is commissioned by God to live a life with a sense of mission because God has this plan for us to accomplish. The purpose of our salvation ultimately is, of course, to bring him glory and to see his kingdom purposes accomplished here on earth so that he gets the glory that he deserves. There are two analogies that we find in God's word that help us understand and appreciate how it is you and I can effectualize the mission that God has given to us. One of those passages is Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, where Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. There are several characteristics of salt that I think Jesus had in mind that are applicable to how it is we live our life. Salt preserves. And one of the things that we find as we study God's word is that the presence of God's people in a culture should help preserve that culture if God's people are the salt that he intended them to be. Salt sustains life. If you don't have enough salt in your blood, you will experience heart failure. It's one of the electrolytes that's necessary that keeps us going physically. Salt is necessary for life. Spiritually, 
salt is necessary for life as well. We are to be the salt of the earth. And if people who dwell in darkness are to find the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ and embrace it so that they move from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life, it's going to be in large measure as a result of their encounter with you and with me. Salt improves taste. I'm kind of a saltaholic. You know, I, I'm not a really big fan of crunchy things, but gosh, I really like salty potato chips. You know, and so pretty soon you open the bag and the bag is empty. It's like, how did that happen? Salt improves taste. The chemical reaction that happens in your mouth when you eat food, when salt is present, is salt wakes up our taste buds. It really does. It says, get ready for something good. Wake up and absorb what's there. Now think about that in terms of our interaction with the people in our lives who don't know Jesus. Their interaction with us as salt of the earth ought to be to wake up to the spiritual realities that are part of their life and awaken their taste buds so that they taste and see that the Lord is good. That has an impact upon every aspect of how it is we live our life, how we interact with the people in our checkout line, the people that we work with, our neighbors next door, family members who don't know Jesus. Is their interaction with us such so that we give them a little bit of taste of what God is like and what his goodness and his grace and his love can be that they can know? Salt makes you thirsty. If I eat that whole bag of potato chips half hour later, I'm running around in the you know, kitchen trying to find something to quench my thirst because salt makes you thirsty. It makes you want to drink until that thirst is assuaged. As we look at our culture and we see all the places that people run around trying to assuage the spiritual thirst of their soul, when they encounter us, they ought to thirst, as Jesus said to the woman at the well, for the water that I give you, you will never thirst again. We, on the mission that God has given to us, need to be intentional about being salty people. It's interesting what Jesus said there in Matthew chapter 5 when he says, you know, if the salt has lost its saltiness, it's good only to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. I think one of the reasons why we see the reaction to the church in, in North America today that is primarily negative on the part of our culture around us is because we as God's people have not been the salt we needed to be. We have not lived in such a way that people said, I want... Whatever it is they have, they've given me a taste of God's love, a taste of God's goodness, a taste of God's mercy, and I want to know the God that they know. The second analogy also comes from Matthew chapter 5. It's the very next verse, in fact, in that passage, where Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill 
cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And there it is. We've come circle now back to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where it says, For we are created in is his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And Jesus says, Let your light shine so that as people see your good works, they will glorify God who is in heaven. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we have additional information given to us as to how that whole process can be accomplished and how we can fulfill or complete the mission that God has given to each one of us as his people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse 7, it says this. We'll begin in verse 4. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities. But it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And God has given to his people... We call them spiritual gifts. They are really the tools to do the work that God has called us to do to fulfill the mission that he has given to us. We have the tools we need. Because it says, to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. There are a couple of things we need to unpack from that scripture. One is this word manifest. The Greek word is phanerosis. And it literally means to emit. Now, you don't have to spend too long with me to know that I love flashlights. I do. I don't even know how many I own. I'm usually never more than an arm's reach away from a flashlight, although I left my cell phone in the car and that serves as my flashlight when I don't have a real one with me. But um, I love flashlights. And one of the reasons why I like flashlights is because light overcomes darkness. If there was ever a time for God's people to be the flashlights of our culture, it is today. Even as John prayed, as we see the darkness increasing around us, and that is indisputable. It is time for God's people to be the brightest lights, that city on the hill, which illuminates who God is to the people who dwell in darkness. The point is, how do we do that? It's nice to say, you know, you're the salt of the earth. It's nice to say you're the light of the world. But what does that look like in terms of how I live my life? And here it is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are given the gifts of God's Spirit, the tools for ministry, so that we might manifest the presence of God in our life. Turn the lights on for others to see Jesus. 
The point is that spiritual gifts given to God's people is God's way to shine his presence into the life of those who do not know him. In Daniel chapter 5, Daniel is one of my favorite books in the Bible. Daniel is far and away my favorite character of the Old Testament. Because here is a young man, when we meet him in the first part of the book, who is dropped involuntarily into a culture of great darkness spiritually. And he shines as bright as one possibly can. So that when the wheels came off and he survived through several kings and at least two kingdoms, when the wheels came off, people said, go find Daniel because in him lives the spirit of the holy God. Our culture is seeing the wheels come off. And if you and I are serious about being salt and light, our culture ought to be saying to the church, in you lives the spirit of the holy gods, a spirit of wisdom. We need your help. But why don't they ask that? Because maybe there's too little manifestation of the spirit of God's presence in our life. We know well how to condemn our enemies. We do not know so well how to love them. We know very well how to criticize our political leaders. And they do things that deserve criticism. But how adept are we at providing solutions to the problems they don't know how to solve? In John chapter 9, Jesus said, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. But then in Matthew chapter 5, he says, now you are the light of the world. And in John chapter 9, the verse before the one where Jesus says, as long as I am lighted, I'm in the world, I am light of the world, he says, we, including us who are his followers, must work the works of him who sent me while it is day for the night is coming, in stating that Jesus was including all of us in the mission. What is that mission? Well, again, we're going to go to a familiar verse of Scripture in Matthew chapter 28, one we can probably quote from memory. It's what Jesus told his followers just prior to his departure and going back to heaven, for he says in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, these things that we don't want to forget. It's important for us to organize our life by what Jesus' final instructions were. He came to them and he said, All authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go, therefore, or as you go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And don't forget this, he says, I'm with you always, all the way to the end. There it is. 
It's one of five times that we find a version of the Great Commission in the New Testament. In Mark chapter 16, verses 15 to 18, he states it this way, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Go, that's the action. To the world, there's the scope. And the message, the good news, that Jesus Christ came to die in our place for our sin, to fix a problem you and I could never have solved. And that is the fact that we had violated God's righteousness and could not unscramble that egg or put Humpty Dumpty back together again on our own. That we needed not just to be repaired, we need to be recreated by Jesus Christ. For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that is not of ourselves, not a result of works, so that no one should boast, but we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. There's the mission. Make disciples of all nations. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. In Luke chapter 24, he stated this, this way. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending you forth the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city. I love this part. Until you are clothed with power from on high. And once that happened, that group turned the world upside down in 30 years. It is estimated That in 30 AD, the approximate time frame, when Jesus gave those marching orders to his followers, archaeologists, based upon excavations in various large cities that they have uncovered in civilizations in various places, estimate the whole population of the world at that time was about 30 million people. A population smaller than today's United States population. But it's also given to us in the, in, the, in the book of Acts and in 1 Corinthians, the fact that after Jesus' resurrection, he appeared to about 500 people before he went back to heaven. In my opinion, I think that those were the 500 who were his core followers. Yes, we had the disciples, minus Judas. We had the apostles. We had close friends like Mary and Martha. And then there were 500 that had really committed to following him, and he made sure that he had conversation with them before he left, and that is the conversation that he gave. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, if there were 300 million people alive on planet Earth during that time, and only 500 believers, that means each one of those 500 people to reach the whole world would have had to disciple 600,000 people each. Now, obviously, not everybody that you confront with the gospel is going to embrace it. 
But the point is, that was a rather staggering task. And without social media, and without radio, and without television, and without the internet, in 30 years, they brought the gospel to the edges of China, to India, to Africa, to Asia Minor, to Europe. 30 years. In 30 years, the gospel of Jesus Christ conquered the Roman Empire. They got the mission done. Now, it's estimated that as we sit here today, that there are 7.8 billion, with a B, people alive on planet Earth. If you were to include every stripe of what you could possibly call a Christian, it's estimated that of that almost 8 billion, 2.4 billion would identify themselves in some fashion as a Christian. But you and I know not everybody who says, yeah, I'm a Christian, really knows Jesus Christ as Savior. They just are probably saying, well, that means I'm not Muslim, I'm not Hindu. I drove past a church once and thought about going in, um, you know, or I got married in a church, so I must be a Christian. So let's shrink that down, you know, like Gideon's force, where, you know, God says, yeah, we're not going to do it with all those. Let's shrink it down a little bit more. Uh, no, 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 that doesn't work either. So his force went from thousands down to 300. God says, that's enough. So what's enough today? If we shrank down that 2.4 billion people who could self-identify in any way, shape, or form as Christian and said, maybe only 15% of them really know Jesus, then we'd have 360 million people to reach 8 billion people. But let's shrink it even more. Let's shrink it down to 10%. Let's say that one out of every 10 people who would self-identify as Christians really know Jesus. That's 240 million. If I've done my math correctly, those 240 million people would only have to reach and disciple 22.5, that's the hard part, 0.5, people in their lifetime. It's staggering. Here we had the early church, 500 core believers, population of about 300 million people, each responsible to reach the gospel for 600,000 people. And today, if we take 10% of those who claim to know, claim that they are Christians, as people who really know Jesus, that 10% only has to disciple 22.5 people in the course of their lifetime. So how long is lifetime? The average lifespan today is 73 years in our world. <clears throat> now, if you happen to live in Hong Kong or Japan, you need to bump that up to 85 years. But if you have the misfortune of living in Chad or Central African Republic, you need to knock it down to 55 years. But the average is 73. Studies have also been done in terms of at what age do people come to know Christ if they're going to become his follower? The statistics are really eye-opening. 
1% come to know Christ by the age of three. My oldest daughter, Megan, would be one of those. At the age of three, she really got the gospel and came to know Christ and is still walking with Christ today, as, praise God, our other five children. 63% of people who become followers of Jesus make the decision to do that between the age of four and 14. 34% make that decision between the age of 15 and 30. And only 2% make that decision after the age of 30. So by the age of 30, except for 2%, but just to keep the numbers round, after the age of 30, most everybody who's going to become a Christian has made that choice. Now, there are a couple of things that we need to note of that. That means in terms of focusing our ministry, we need to focus on those 30 and below, not neglecting those 30 and above, of which I'm part of that group, incidentally. But the most fertile ground in which to plow the seeds of the gospel are the 30 and below. Because the older we get, the more staid we become in our ways. The least likely we are to change. Now, God can change a heart anytime he wants to. I understand his sovereignty, which means we should not neglect opportunities to bring the gospel to those above the age of 30. But just in terms of priority, think about how effective are we in reaching those 30 and below. Now, if the average age of a person on planet Earth is 73, and if by the age of 30, someone has come to know Christ as Savior, that means 73 minus 30, sorry to bring math into, into Sunday morning service, but I think that means there are 43 useful years of ministry for that person. If each has 43 years of useful ministry based on the statistical average. And if, given the number of people alive on planet Earth who know Christ as Savior is 10% of those who would have any way to describe themselves as a Christian, the 22.5 people that need to be reached in the scope of one's lifetime of ministry means that's one person approximately every other year. It's not impossible. Could you help somebody become a follower of Jesus? One person every other year? That's not an impossible task. It's not 600,000. It's one every other year and then train them to make other disciples and see the thing expand exponentially. God has not given us an impossible task. He's given us His Spirit. He's given us the tools. He's given us the message. He's given us the strategy. Maybe what we lack is the motivation to accept personal responsibility for the mission of disciple-making. You say, it makes me nervous. I get it. 
Sometimes when you present the gospel to people, you get the response of the woman at the well who says, I need this living water. How can I get it? And other times they pick up stones to stone you. Either way, it's accomplishing the mission of making sure that people have the opportunity to understand the gospel and are given the opportunity to choose yes, I will follow, or no, I refuse. But it is a little scary, which is why in the third place in the Gospels where we have the mission articulated by Jesus, Jesus said to them, get ready, here it is, peace I give you. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 6, gives us the battle dress uniform for those of us who are called to be disciple makers. The helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth. The shoes shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That is my favorite part. Because that means no matter where we go, to the workplace, to a family gathering, to our neighbor next door, to Zimbabwe, to Chad, to China, to Mexico, to the Ukraine, to Austria. Don't have to go to Antarctica because the penguins have really cold hearts. Sorry, that's a really bad joke. Wherever we go, we can wear shoes of peace. Yesterday, my family gathered at the Air Force Memorial outside the Pentagon in Washington, D.C. to see our son, Douglas, not junior, but <clears throat> Retire from 20 years of active duty in the United States Air Force. 10 years of combat search and rescue. Four tours in Iraq, one in Afghanistan. Has a purple heart. 10 years doing very high level IT work in the US Air Force and watched him receive the Department of Defense Meritorious Service Medal. I am gray and bald because of what he has been through. And when he and I talked privately yesterday, he told me even more that made me even more gray and more bald. And yet, as he spoke at his retirement ceremony, he made it clear that what had enabled him to fulfill his mission was in large measure a consequence of his personal faith in Jesus Christ. And he literally has been on physical battlefields with people dying all around and beside him and came home and had to be patched up with multiple surgeries and then went back in for more. He said, I did that because of my faith in Jesus. The spiritual battlefield 
is even more consequential. It is even more dangerous. It is even more difficult than Iraq or Afghanistan. The stakes are forever high. And we've got the best armor in all the universe. And we have a king who said, I give you my peace and you get to wear shoes of peace wherever you go on this mission of making disciples. So while we need to be alert, we do not have to be afraid. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you all the way to the end. And then there's Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many, many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speak, speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they came together, they said, Lord, at this time are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See, their frame of reference was really small. Are we going to get our kingdom now? Are we going to get to finally get the promise of Genesis chapter 12 fulfilled in our lifetime? Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You see, Jesus didn't come just to save Israel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only one son that whoever believes in him would have eternal life and never perish. And he wanted those disciples to understand the reason why he's delaying and not giving the kingdom to Israel at that slice in time was he had many more sheep he wanted to be brought into his fold and they were the ones to find them and so are we. But he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and on into the uttermost part of the earth. It's interesting. In Luke chapter 24, he said, you shall be witnesses of these things. That's the tactic, to be a witness. A witness just simply says, here's what I experienced. Here's what's happened to me. Here's what Jesus has done in my life. Here's how he's changed me. Here's how he guides me. Here's how he gives me peace in the middle of storms. You just tell what your experience is. In John chapter 20, he says, I am sending you. That's the authority to accomplish the mission. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, he says, You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and on into the uttermost part of the earth. The objective is to share what has happened. But he also says, You can't do it without power from on high.
Jesus said very clearly, without me, you can do nothing. The other side of that coin of reality is Paul's words where he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Jesus says, don't start the mission without the power of the presence of the Spirit of God in your life. So let me ask you this. How powerful is the presence of the Spirit of God in your life and mine? How yielded are we? How much of our prayers are filled with, Lord, do this for me, rather than, Lord, what's your will, and how can I get it done? What are the good works that you've prepared for me to walk in? What is my personal mission I need to fulfill? What are the tools you have put in my hand? If we had more time, we would go through Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14 and Ephesians chapter 5 and other portions of Scripture. Peter wrote about it as well. Those portions of Scripture that describe the tools for ministry, the gifts of the Spirit. Some of them so important for the inception of the church, not so necessary today, but others like the gift of encouragement, the gift of helps, the gift of teaching, the gift of pastoral leadership, the gift of administration, those are tools. The gift of mercy. Those are the tools that he's given to his people to accomplish the mission today. You say, oh, I'm a nobody. There was a guy on the backside of the desert 3,400 years ago watching sheep living every day with regret. He had it easy, made a bad mistake, ended up watching sheep as a fugitive. This bush starts to burn, but it doesn't burn up. Goes and takes a look, hears a voice, says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. Take off those dirty shoes. I got shoes of peace planned for you to replace them with. Here's my mission for you. Standing before a burning bush, hearing God's voice, Moses says, can't do it. But my brother could. God says, I'm asking you. I, I, but but, but um, I, 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 I can't speak. God said, who made your mouth? All I've got is a stick. What good is that? Throw it on the ground. It becomes a snake. Now pick it up. It became a stick again. If all you have and all I have is a stick, plus God, that's more than enough to get the mission done. And you and I should never say to God, give the job to my brother. Like Isaiah, we all should say, here am I. Send me. Heavenly Father, press your word into our soul. And may it change us.
And may, as was prayed earlier, we not just be good hearers of the word, but may we do it with the strength only you can supply. In Jesus' name we pray.